Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Spiritualized Selfishness. Have you ever started a project or hobby that seemed harmless enough, but quickly grew into an obsession? Well, it can range from video games to movie stars, from bargain shopping to knitting. However, whatever pursuit does not accentuate our main pursuit of Jesus Christ is a big, fat, whopping dose of selfishness and spurns the rightful king of our souls. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Spiritualized selfishness. This is quite the way to start out the year. <clears throat> well, I have a hunch that every single one of us will be indicted somewhere along the line in this message. Because there's tremendous propensity to take selfishness and attempt to justify it. We are naturally selfish. We pop out of the womb selfish. We are bent selfish. And even after we come to Jesus Christ, we oftentimes can remain selfish unless we allow Jesus Christ to enter in and deal with the root of selfishness, which is the flesh, which is us. And as long as we remain alive and kicking... As long as we remain the centerpiece of our life and the motivation of our life is to aggrandize or to coddle ourselves, we can attempt to be Christians, but what we're doing is we are merely covering over the fact that we are self-centered, egotists, desiring the throne of our life, attempting to classify it as Christianity. But Christianity, in its very essence, is us being removed from the center position and Christ gaining the center position. It's Christianity. Always has been. In America, though, we've had a tremendous overhaul of what historic Christianity has always been. And we've been told somehow, somewhere, it's not like someone comes up to us and just says, you know what, you can remain in the center of your life. You can make this life about you. And everything's just fine that way. Somehow, we've gotten the notion, because we as Christians in this country, and I'm sure other countries around, but let's speak for America here, since that's where we're at, have come up with an elaborate theology and doctrine to prosper self at the center of our life. So spiritualized selfishness. Buckle your seatbelts. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. This is going to seem like the opposite of the title, Spiritualized Selfishness. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There is a will of God in Christ Jesus. Your position as a Christian ought to be in Christ Jesus. Christianity is all about location. And if you're outside of a plane, you don't have the benefits of those that are inside the plane. The same with Jesus Christ. You can be near Jesus Christ, but you must be in Jesus Christ to take advantage of what he has done upon the cross. And there is a will that is established by God in Christ Jesus. And listen to this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. I want you to realize that that little short list is the opposite of selfishness. I know it sounds fun. It sounds wonderful. But most of us would say, well, I would rejoice always if my life was easier. Well, how, look at the second line. Talk about one that we've glossed over and somehow excused ourselves from having any culpability of, of not keeping. Pray without ceasing. 
Now, every single one of us could band together and nod along and say, I'm sure he doesn't actually mean that. Pray without stoppage. Always pray. Always stay in connectedness with God. That's what it means. The way we say it at Ellerslie is it's like a lamp. And a lamp has, I mean, I know they can look good. And the one reason that some of us buy lamps maybe is to make our living room look good. But technically, it's a strange thing for a lamp just to sit in a corner with no bulb in it. A lamp is meant to give light. I'm sure that you would all agree. But what is the good of a lamp, even with a light bulb in it, if it's unplugged? An unplugged lamp cannot give light. And the same thing with an unplugged Christian. A Christian must remain plugged in. A Christian is intended to shine a light in this world. However, we have created an elaborate justification system for unplugging. It's just our time. We can't always remain plugged into Jesus. I mean, come on. That's a little overwhelming. Pray without ceasing? Ah! We can't do that. And so, we end up with lives that most of us live. Partly plugged in. I mean, we give off light sometimes, but most of the time, you know, we can't just remain plugged in. It's a lot of voltage that has to be going in and, in and through us. You know, we, we need some downtime. We need some reprieve from the battle and from the war. I know exactly what that feeling is. At Ellerslie, we have a term that says noakakio, the Greek word for flab and spiritual tiredness and weakness is akakio. And over and over and over throughout the New Testament says none of it, not a scrap of it. You do not grow tired or weary. Ah, you do not grow tired or weary. Could you imagine living a life where you do not grow tired or weary? What's funny is every single one of us in here would like such a life, but we really don't want to have to live such a life because we really do like, I know it sounds strange, but we really do like growing tired and weary. Because when we grow tired and weary, we can now justify time spent on us to coddle us. Hey, I'm tired and I'm weary. What if you remove that from the Christian plate? No, you're not allowed to grow tired or weary. Haven't you ever heard what Paul says? No akakio? No tiredness, no weakness. God has supplied you everything you need for life and godliness. And that means a constancy of soul. He has given you everything you need to remain plugged in always. What is the natural result inside of you? There's a little fight, isn't there? I don't like this guy. What is he talking about? I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen that in Scripture. Well, you can spend a semester with us at Ellerslie and you'll hear a whole bunch of it. Ellerslie, nine weeks of staying plugged in. Oh, it's, it can be exhausting and exhilarating once you finally accept it. And you stop fighting because what we're doing is we're trying to justify self. And self is looking to be coddled. And when you remain plugged in, self is not stroked. And so there's a battle within you even as I bring it up. You see, we've spiritualized selfishness. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And in everything, give thanks. That means no self-pity. I like my self-pity. You see, we like to... I mean, we, the concept of rejoicing always sounds wonderful. However... You don't want to have to rejoice always. You want to complain sometimes. You want to get a good, juicy complaint out, a grievance. You want to hold on to it. No, you're not allowed to. You see, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Rejoice always. You know that's a command? 
It's a command. Rejoice always. Never cease from rejoicing. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. You know the reason we cannot fulfill this scripture? Is because we are still the center of our lives. When Jesus becomes the center, this is his behavior. This is how he functions. You know, there's part of you, even as I'm saying it, that's fighting. And there's another part that says, you know, I wouldn't mind rejoicing always. I wouldn't mind actually giving thanks in all things. You know, the praying without ceasing sounds exhausting. Well, you know what? If it's possible, sure. The puzzle. The seemingly harmless unplugging. It's not fun when I have to be the illustration. Uh, however, I take a very strong stance at Ellerslie for remaining plugged in. Does that mean that I am not baited to unplug? Maybe I'm baited more to unplug. I don't know. It's, it's a rough thing to stand on. There's something about the holidays that is extra challenging in the issue of plugging in and remaining plugged in because there's all sorts of traditions and fun things that we do. And there's just part of me, I'm going to speak from my vantage point here instead of yours, there's part of me that is constantly in the battle. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always fighting, and there's that part of me that yearns for a little downtime. It doesn't go away. Just because I shout at my soul and I say, no, no akekyo, Eric, doesn't mean that I don't have a voice that says, come on, just a little akekyo, Eric. You see, the voice is still there. It's a temptation. It's a bait. Now, here's what happened this Christmas. My parents... It wasn't a, a regular tradition. My parents struggled with traditions. We had tradition like one year and then the next year it changed and then the next year it came back and so on. So I don't know if to call it a tradition, but it was the puzzle where we'd get a, a puzzle over Christmas. And I had sort of a fond memory of this. I love puzzles, okay? And so this Christmas, I decided that I was going to get a puzzle. Now, I actually thought people were going to be coming over to my house uh, for Christmas. I didn't have it all figured out. And so... My puzzle strategy sort of fell through the cracks on this, and I ended up setting up, I got so excited about this puzzle. I went to Target, they had no good puzzles. So the puzzle I ended up getting was a thousand piece puzzle, it was a terrible picture. You know, it was a very boring picture, but hey, it was the only one they really had. And so I set it up on the table in the kids' classroom, and I began to work on it. I justified it at first with Harper and Hudson were helping me, and you know, they got bored of these little teeny pieces uh, after a while, and suddenly they faded, and I was into my puzzle. And a thousand-piece puzzle, when you're doing it by yourself, isn't just done in an hour or two. Okay, so now I had this puzzle with, you know, just sort of the outer rim figured in. And I found myself sort of walking throughout the day wanting to get back to my puzzle. You know, and the kids need attention. Leslie has questions. Leslie needs me to wash dishes. I found myself getting irritable with these little projects that I used to do without any issue. I always do that just my life. And now suddenly it's in the way of my puzzle. It's Christmas time, and it's my puzzle. Now, I didn't say that out loud. I didn't want Leslie to feel that she was threatened by that puzzle. I didn't want her to know that I was thinking about the puzzle. There was this one piece in the puzzle that was so obvious in my mind. It's like, that is, should be so easy to find. I had all the pieces laid out, and I could not find it. And so I began to think of how did Dubber Do come up and steal the piece? You know, where is that piece? And so I'm finding myself doing these, I love patterns. Puzzles are all about pattern. And so I, 
I think I organize things and colors and schemes and everything on the table, and my mind is engaged in this puzzle. And guess what? Eric is starting to distance himself from his family over the Christmas break. Eric is starting to be a little more irritable than normal. You know, my kids are starting to get under my skin a little quicker. And I was in bed, uh, it was in the middle of the night, it was one of those windy nights. We've had a couple of those lately. And I was wide awake, you know, because the wind was keeping me up. It was like one of those whistly wind types of things. And I was just laying there, and I said, God, I'm feeling weak right now spiritually. I don't know why, I just don't have the oomph. And I always have an oomph. And it's hard to explain, but the oomph was missing. And guess what God put his finger on? My puzzle. My puzzle. That my puzzle had become a way of justifying a little escape. And he, my God was basically saying to me, Eric, I need you sharp. And anything that dulls you must be removed. Now, I'm not putting that upon your conscience. That's mine. A puzzle might be fine for you, but for me, it was literally a dulling of my spiritual life. So guess what I did the next morning? I went straight in there, got a trash bag, threw it in the trash, and got rid of it. Never saw it again. It wasn't that exciting of a puzzle anyways. Talk about a meaningless reason to unplug my spiritual life. We all have justifications of why we turn to certain things outside of Jesus Christ. This was the big conviction that was upon my soul. The night before, Leslie had been working on something. I think it was like editing the magazine or something. And so she doesn't need me, right? And whereas I would typically go and do study or pray. I mean, that's literally what I would typically do. I know this might sound boring to some of you, but that's what I do with my life. Instead, I went to my puzzle. And in the middle of the night, I awakened to the, to the notion, and I was thinking about the fact that I probably should have been praying last night instead of working on my meaningless puzzle. And I want you to realize, Christians need to be praying. We live in a dying world that is going to hell in a handbasket, and we are the agents to facilitate the work of God on this earth. And if we're lost in a puzzle somewhere, unplugged, the enemy has no resistance to overtaking the lives of those around us. We must engage in this battle. Me time. Time for self-benefit. Now, every single one of us knows what me time is without me needing to define it. We like me time. Now, I know you're wondering why you had to come to this service. It's like, oh, come on. Well, most services are like this, by the way. But me time, time for self-benefit. Six different uses of me time. One, to recharge. Why would you do this? Why would you unplug? Well, one of our reasons is to recharge. Isn't that a funny statement? You unplug from the electrical source to recharge. See, what you're looking for is you're looking for the opportunity to charge some other way. You don't want to have to find your fuel source from God, your energy source from God. Ah. Oh, you see, God brings conviction. God is always shining a searchlight. I want out. I actually want to hide in a dark corner for a bit. And we call it recharging. But we want to recharge our batteries. You know the best way to recharge your batteries? Keep plugged in. Stay in Jesus Christ. Remain in Jesus Christ. And guess what? You will be recharged. I've proven this for years of my life. I don't do the typical leisure things that other people do. 
My life is very intense, early morning to late at night, and yet I'm extremely satisfied, extremely energetic. Number two, to express. You see, one of the other things we do with me time is, and maybe not as much men as women on this one, but there's a need to get things out. There's a need to talk. There's a need to walk through everything. It's express. It's, it's a form of me time because it's therapeutic for the soul. We just need to get things out. And then you also have to vent. Now, I know that sounds like express, but it's a subtly different thing because you can get together and express, and what you might struggle with might be gossip. You know, that could be one of the weaknesses. But vent is a little different. Now, I realize it can be similar, but to vent is to get out frustration and anger, to veg. That's to literally, literally turn off the lights. You don't want to be engaged with anything. You want to just go brain dead for a, for a little season. Now, I want you to realize that's me time. I know it doesn't sound like me time. It's called vegging. We all know what it is because we've all done it many times. That's me time. To inebriate. Well, that's, there's all sorts of different ways that you can do it. You can get lost in a movie, you can get lost in alcohol, you can get lost in drugs, but it's a way of clouding over and creating a false reality. Your mind is not sharp. When you are inebriated, you cannot see straight. You do not drive straight. Your life does not go straight. However, it's justified. It's me time. Everyone needs it. Yeah, I had my God time last week. Now this is me time. To pity. Self-pity. It's a wonderful way of spending me time. Miserable way, but we like it for some reason. It's stroking ourselves. Oh, poor you. It's one of the most dangerous poisons you could ever allow into your soul is self-pity. The invasion of self-coddling into modern Christianity. There's a scripture in Genesis 17. This is a statement by Abraham. Abraham, the father of the faith, the great patriarch of the Jewish nation and thusly those that believe, which is us, the Christian nation. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. You see, God promises Abraham a son. And Abraham in cahoots with his wife, come up with a solution. Since God is taking time, a little too much time, in bringing about this promised child, Abraham realizes, if I take it into my own hands, I could create a son my own way. This is self's attempt at doing what only God could do. And what was produced? A boy named Ishmael. And Abraham loved Ishmael, just like you love your Ishmael's. And what does Ishmael, or what does Abraham plea before God? Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. We don't need Isaac. Couldn't Ishmael live before you? Well, that's the plea of our souls, right there. We want our self-serving existence to live before God, to be approved by God. God, why can't you look down on this and smile? Because I like my life this way. I don't want to have to give up my life this way. Oh, that my Ishmaelic life could live before you. The redefinition of sin. You see, we've had a change in our Christian culture on a very critical point, and that's the issue of what sin is. Now, let's look at what it's always been. Biblical Christianity throughout the ages has always understood sin to be self on the throne. In other words, self in its improper position. At the fall of man, back in the Garden of Eden, man usurped a position that God was supposed to have said, you can be as God. 
And self rose up to claim that which only belonged to God. And as a result, the spiritual man died. Sin entered in. The flesh now controlled the human body instead of the spirit. So biblical Christianity has always said self is on the throne. That's the great problem, and that's what Jesus Christ came to deal with. You see, we have two things that Paul talks about in Scripture. You have sin, and then you have sins with a plural, an S on the end. Sins are what most of us understand the cross to be about. Jesus came to wash us of our sins. But I want you to realize what he came to do was set your life properly in order and to deal with the root problem of sin, which is self on the throne. And when you deal with the root problem of sin, guess what? Your sins are no more. Yes, they are cleansed, and yes, you are forgiven, and yes, you are justified, but Jesus desires to do something deeper, and that is to set you right within your soul so that he comes in, takes his throne, is crowned with many crowns, and you become a butler to his agenda in this body and in this life. Well, that's just biblical Christianity. Now, look at this. Modern Christianity has a new definition for sin. Now, I'm going to walk through this for you. Sin is the false self on the throne. You could say, well, what's the difference? There's a big difference between the two. The false self, Dr. Phil calls it the fictional self. The, this is a terminology, and it's very purposeful, and I want to expose it this morning because when you begin to change terminology in Scripture to fit what we want, there's an agenda behind it. It's what the enemy does. He works in truth, sort of. He works in part truths. Truth, 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 lie, truth, 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 truth. Suddenly the whole thing is a lie. And that's how the enemy works. The enemy's great agenda is to keep self on the throne. Why? Because that's sin. And sin destroys. Sin is the very problem that Jesus came to rescue us from. He's, the enemy wants to debunk the whole cross. And when we as Christians fall for it, it's the greatest tragedy. So we have this statement, the false self on the throne. I'm going to walk through a few quotes from some of your favorite books, uh, at least modern Christianity's favorite books. But I'm going to dig into uh, the Eldridge uh, message. The Eldridges are one of the number one proponents of what we're going to talk about today. Okay? Now, I'm not going to just try and hit, you know, the elders across the cheek. What I want to do is say, you know what? What they're representing is very dangerous, okay? I have nothing against them personally. In fact, they're very, very nice people. However, what they're representing has made a massive impact upon our Christian culture. And it's the introduction of what could be called the false self. So that, get this, so that the true self might take the throne of your life. So Brennan Manning, who's another uh, very popular author today of especially the book, uh, The uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, is quoted in Wild at Heart on page 106 as saying, the spiritual life begins with the acceptance of our wounded self. Whatever is denied cannot be healed. And so basically it's saying, you have a wound. Look inside yourself. We go, oh, I'm hurting. I've been abused when I was being raised. I have hurts. I have issues. And that's what Brennan Manning would say. This is the beginning of your spiritual life. You must recognize that you, yourself, is wounded. Poor you. I looked at, looked at one of the people in the congregation, and they, they thought I was talking to them on that one. <clears throat> John Eldridge. 
It says, from the place of our woundedness, we construct a false self. This is what I'm giving you is I'm giving the anatomy of what is termed the false self today. Okay, so basically you have a wound. You have a problem. You have hurts. You have issues. And as a result, you've created a false self. So I'm not even going to argue that this isn't true. You create sort of a false image, a false behavior. And so though inside you are an insecure pile of rubble, on the outside you still show a confidence and you walk about as if you're something special. Okay, whatever you want to call that, you can call it the false self for all I care. However, that's not your issue. Your problem with what Jesus Christ came to save you from was you, not your false self. And so what we have is this place of woundedness. And then we enter in, and in this place of woundedness, the false self is created. John Eldridge oftentimes calls it the father wound. In other words, where your father spoke things to you that were harsh and demeaning, and you've begun to believe them, which is true. We could go through all this. This is just psychology 101. Yes, of course that's true. This isn't what Jesus Christ came to deal with. He deals with this as a byproduct of dealing with your root problem, but this is not the root problem. Brennan Manning says, when I was eight, the imposter or false self was born as a defense against pain. The imposter within whispered, Brennan, don't ever be your real self anymore because nobody likes you as you are. Invent a new self that everybody will admire and nobody will know. You know what? I bet most of us in here have done this. So I'm not going to say and debunk it and say, oh, that never happens. I'm saying that this is not actually sin. This is just the psychological gymnastics that we go through as humans in a fallen universe. We have issues. We have problems. But to solve those problems, we need Jesus Christ to come in and uproot us off the throne of our existence. However, what you're going to see is a very creative way of dealing with keeping self on the throne. John Eldridge says, in order to take a man into his wound so that he can heal it and begin the release of the true self. You see, what the end game is for the Eldridges is the true self. That you would be your true person, the true self. God will thwart the false self to do it. He will take away all that you have leaned upon to bring you to life. The real journey begins when the false self fails. John Eldridge says, The whole false self, our lifestyle, is an elaborate defense against entering our wounded heart. It is a chosen blindness. Our false self stubbornly blinds each of us to the light and the truth of our own emptiness and hollowness, says Manning. There are readers who even now have no idea what their wound is or even what false self arose from it. Ah, how convenient that blindness is. Blissful ignorance. I want you to realize what the bait is here. You need to examine yourself. You need to go into your wound. Start focusing on you. You have problems and issues and you have hurts. I want you to turn towards yourself to figure out where that false self is so that your true self can finally live. This is so far removed from the gospel. So far removed. But a wound unfelt is a wound unhealed. We must go in. The door may be your anger. It may be rejection that you've experienced, perhaps from a girl. It may be a failure or the loss of the golden bat and the way God is thwarting your false self. It may be a simple prayer. Jesus, take me into my wound. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus stands at the door and knocks so that he can come in and boot you off the throne. He's not against a false self. He's against self. The Bible doesn't try and delineate between false and true self. 
Yourself is true whatever way you want to look at it. It's there. It's you. You are in the improper position in your life, and that is seated on the throne. Is this really all about us? Well, let's ask the Johns. So I have three different Johns that we're going to ask. We have John Eldridge, John the Apostle, and John the Baptist. John Eldridge makes a case. This is only when we enter our wound will we discover our true glory. When you enter your wound, you'll realize that there's a glory that you have. This is what his argument is. There's a glory that is innate within men and women. And that's what captivating is about. It's about the woman's glory or her beauty. You need to discover your own beauty. Where does beauty come from? Where does glory come from? Just like the moon. It has no glory of its own. It's merely a reflection of the sun. We have nothing in and of ourselves. And I know in this generation where we want to prop up and give self-esteem to everyone, it sounds horrible, the Christian message. But the Christian message is you are devoid of any true glory and any beauty. You have nothing. You can dig all you want in your wound and you will not find any true glory. You don't have it. He does. And you must be invaded by the God of the universe. The same God that was retracted from you in the Garden of Eden must now invade you. That is the way to be restored. And there is only one way and that is it. And it's always been that way. He came to restore the glorious creation that you are and then set you free to be yourself. If I were to go into this at a greater level, you would be horrified. Because basically what it is, he calls it an intimate independence of God. We can know God and we can be around God, but we don't actually need God. He's done the work. Now we're independent and able to be ourselves. He's given us so much in our natural creation. Now we just begin to dig down into the well of us and we can live and be all that we intended to be, we're intended to be. By the way, it's called blasphemy. Come out of the boat, take the throne. Quote, unquote, John Eldridge. Take the throne is his counsel. And I say, get off the throne. See a difference between the two? I know it might seem a little blurry. John says, take the throne. And I'm here to tell you this morning, get off the throne. I don't know if you heard it. Slight difference, I know. The apostle John says, he that speaks of himself. Let me read that again. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true and no unrighteousness is in him. The great secret to righteousness is it's a turning outward, no longer a focus upon self, but a focus upon him. This is about Jesus and not about you. What did John the Baptist say? He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I, self, must decrease. The modern gospel says this, I must increase so that Christ would increase. That's what it says. No, if you are seen, if you gain position of power and authority in this world, then people will come to you and you can say, I just want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone will go, wow, they're a Christian. And that's how God is seen. No, God is seen by you obeying. 
And by you decreasing and getting out of the way and not shrouding the view, we are not supposed to see you. We are supposed to see him. Blending God into your selfish existence. This is a great quote by Ian Thomas. It has been shown that the primary limitation imposed upon you as man in order that you may be in the likeness of your master and bear the image of the invisible is that of total dependence upon God in that your behavior to be godly must derive directly and exclusively from God's activity in you and through you. Any activity, therefore, in which you may engage, no matter how nobly conceived, which does not stem from this humble attitude of dependence upon God, violates the basic principles of your true humanity and the role for which you were created. By independence or the absence of faith, you eliminate God, the source of your own godliness. But only God has the right to be the source of his own godliness, so that however unwittingly you are acting as your own God, you will still believe or pretend that you are worshiping God, but as the object of your imitation, even Christ himself may only be an excuse for worshiping your own ability to imitate, an ability vested in yourself. And this is the basis of all self-righteousness. It is startling to discover that even God may be used as an excuse for worshiping yourself, demonstrating again that's the satanic genius for distorting truth and deceiving man. For it was to this temptation that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Gerard Manley, this is sort of an emergent poet. He says, My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. Now that's poetry, so some of you are like, huh, what's he talking about? My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me pity my heart. I've been abused. I've been wounded. Let me pity me. And let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. Let me be kind to self. Stroke self. He's had it rough. This is difficult for poor old self. Self is your great enemy within. If you stroke it and are hereafter kind, you are not living out Christianity. I'm not talking about kicking yourself. I'm not talking about cutting yourself. I'm talking about recognizing the rebellion within self. If your derriere is seated on the throne that belongs to Jesus, it is not Jesus that is the problem. It is you. And you are the rebel within. And you must be dethroned. And you could say, I don't know how to do that call out for Jesus. He would love to help. See, most of us are like, mm, I don't like that answer. Because it's exposing the fact that we don't want to be helped off the throne. See, we can make all sorts of complaints and say, I've tried to get off the throne. Have you come to Jesus and said, get me off the throne? Because that's what the cross was about. Charles Spurgeon is responding to Gerard Manley. I know Gerard Manley lives now, and Charles Spurgeon lived hundreds of years ago. Actually, not hundreds. When was Charles Spurgeon? 1860, so 150 years ago. Charles Spurgeon. This is a great quote. I remember William Huntington says in his autobiography that one of the sharpest sensations of pain that he felt after he had been quickened by divine grace was this. He felt such pity for God. 
I do not know that I ever met with the expression elsewhere, but it is a very expressive one. Although I might prefer to say sympathy with God and grief that he should be so evil and treated. Ah, my friends, there are many men that are forgotten, that are despised and that are trampled on by their fellows. But there never was a man who was so despised as the everlasting God has been. Many a man has been slandered and abused, but never was man abused as God has been. Many have been treated cruelly and ungratefully, but never was one treated as our God has been. Let us look back upon our past lives. How ungrateful have we been to him. It was he who gave us beans in the first utterance of our lips should have been in his praise. And so long as we were here, it, is, it was our duty to have perpetually sung his glory. But instead of that, from our birth, we spoke that which was false and untrue and unholy. And since then, we have continued to do the same. Like Spurgeon says, it's not a normal statement to say, I should have pity on God. I mean, he's God. You don't think of having pity on him. However, if you're going to have pity on someone, it shouldn't be you. The way we have mistreated our God, the way we have allowed ourselves to remain in the position of a rebel, even though the cross of Christ, the very life of God was poured out on our behalf, and yet still there we sit. Who should we have pity on? Ourselves? It's supposed to be all about Jesus. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. One of those great classic statements in scripture where Paul is making the defining statement of what his ministry centers around, what his life is built around. You could take it all away and if Paul is left with one singular thing, this is it. In other words, it doesn't mean that he didn't know any more than Jesus and him crucified. It's just that when all could be stripped away, he decided that there was one thing essential, Jesus and him crucified. If you understand Jesus and you understand his cross, well, guess what? Then you understand the entire Bible because that's the key that unlocks the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Covenant. That's what unlocks everything. The law is fulfilled. The manna, the rock in the wilderness, the temple, the sacrifices, it's all unlocked in Jesus Christ. You understand the cross and suddenly you understand the burial. Suddenly you understand the resurrection. Suddenly you understand the ascension. Suddenly you understand the outpouring of the Spirit. It all has context from the cross. You cannot skip the cross and get the outpouring of the Spirit. You must understand Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Bible is not about you. I know this is going to come as a shocker to some of you. The Bible is about Jesus. Christianity is not about you. I know this is going to be very awkward in, a, in an American culture like this. Christianity is about Jesus. And the kingdom of God is not about you. It's about the king whose domain it is. King's domain. Kingdom. It's the king's domain. You happen to be part of it. Now, you're not just kicked off to the side and abused. You are important. However, what's happened in our generation is we've overplayed the importance of us to make us the center, to make us the reason, to make us everything. But the cross was about the glory of God. The cross is about Jesus. Yes, it affects you, and yes, it's extraordinary news. We don't want to diminish that at the same time and say, oh, it's all Jesus, and then kick us in the teeth. Jesus loves us. It's true. However, we have allowed in our souls a fabrication, 
of a form of theology and doctrine which puts us at the center instead of Jesus. Philippians 3, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. For what? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not for the knowledge of his wound. Not so that he could enter in and see his need and be hereafter kind to self. But that he would see the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He suffered the loss of everything for Jesus. This is the centrality of Jesus in Paul's life. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Not win a greater position for self. Not win a greater comfort for my own life. But that he may be found, that he may win Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. By the way, that is not what self will clamor for in your life. Self will not say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I don't know how many of you yourself is clamoring for a little suffering and to be made conformable unto the death of Christ. That is the longing of Christ within. And when Christ takes the position within, guess what? Yourself comes into agreement with it. And you find yourself bending your knee. And you say, do with this body whatever you see fit. I want to share in your sufferings because I recognize that it brings me into an intimate place with you. I just want you to get glory. Whatever it takes, do it. Take this body and make it be your offering, your sacrifice unto this world. Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's Christianity right there. It doesn't say Jesus, you, Jesus, you. Jesus, Jesus, more Jesus, even more Jesus, and let's add another dollop of Jesus on top of that. It's about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus, 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 Jesus. Your entire life should be about Jesus, 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 Jesus. When someone enters your life, they should say, man, they are all about Jesus. And yes, it could be with contempt and mockery, but may it be said of us, they are all about Jesus. The remaking of worship, it's now all about you? Christian worship today, I know that this gets into some political territories. We start dealing with worship, we start poking at certain buttons in people because we have styles, we have longings, we have different tastes. All I want to say is it's not the style that I want to nip at here. That to me isn't as big of an issue as it is to some people. I wouldn't be a big fan of rap worship, just so you know. But what's happened with the concept of worship is it's been turned to focus on us and our needs. Oh God, I have needs. Oh God, I'm here in this place again and I'm struggling. What are you talking about yourself for in worship? What are you doing even thinking about yourself? Isn't worship supposed to be focused on Jesus? Now, I I know worship is more than singing, okay? But there needs to be a turning outward of our life to prostrate ourselves at the feet of a king. To not say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, but holy, holy, holy. You may not be holy, but he is. Cherish his holiness. Hmm. 
How He Loves by John Mark McMillan. I'm not against, there's another John here. Uh, I'm not, I, have, I don't even know John Mark McMillan. All I know is he wrote the lyrics to this song. If this is your favorite worship song, I'm not trying to put a dig in. I'm just saying that this song, for whatever reason, gets under my skin. Okay, now it might be a taste thing. But when I'm saying, I was at this big women's conference. I know it sounds strange for Eric to be at a women's conference. It's actually not as strange as it sounds because Leslie goes to women's conferences and she drags me. But Leslie and all our entire team was gone somewhere at the time. And so I'm in there with like 800 women. Eric and 800 women. I'm in the back. And in, you know, on comes this song, How, How He Loves. And I, I was so disturbed because the whole thing was, Oh, it's about us. I'm just going to read this for you. He is jealous for me. Now, I'm not even going to say these things are false. I'm just saying this isn't worship. This isn't turning outward and beholding the Lamb of God. This isn't falling down on our faces as the 24 elders and crying out, Holy, holy, holy. He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. when, I'm not going to make any comments. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these affliction, afflictions eclipsed by, his, by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Pre-chorus. And oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us all. Yeah? Yay? Yeah? Yay. Yay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves. The intelligence of this song is lacking a little. Yay, he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves. We are his portion and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking, so heaven must meet earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets. Why? When I think about the way he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. How he loves. Yay, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves us. Whoa, how he loves. You know what? It is a fact that God loves us. But this is a changing of the centerpiece of what we are thinking about and what we're meditating upon. Do you remember the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus? No, it sounds sort of similar, doesn't it? Oh, how I love Jesus. It's opposite in its, in its orientation. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. But what is the response? What do you sing about? Oh, how I love him. Not, oh, how he loves me. Get you out of there. Why in the world are you talking about you? Haven't you beheld him? Let's talk about him. Let's rejoice in him. Let's worship him. Not the fact that we are so special. Yes, it's true. You're actually quite special to God. He shed his blood for you. So what is the natural response? To start talking about that? To start talking about him. To glorify him. To turn outward and proclaim him. The truth. God is the great object of worship, not man. He is the object of the story, the object of every song, the object of every conversation, the object of every thought, and the object of every life lived. He is the theme. He is the center, not us. Crown Him with Many Crowns by Matthew Bridges. Listen to the subtle difference here. 
Crown him with many crowns, a lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of peace whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands inside, those wounds yet visible above and beauty glorified. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. Now that is something I can buy into. That is about Jesus. And that's what I want to be singing about. That's what I want to be living about. That's what I want to be reading about. I don't want to be reading about me. I don't want to be reading self-help books to start propping me up and to tell me to seek out my wounds. I want to look at his wounds. I want to see what he has done. Because it changes your disposition. It changes your entire bearing on life when you simply remove the scales of self and behold the living God. Emotional spewing, the great self-healing exercise. You know, there's a lot of junk that can reside inside of us. This is going to make some of us uncomfortable. If you're not uncomfortable already, I'm about to go through a few things that might get you uncomfortable. These are the great self-exercises that we have justified as Christians. And I want you to realize, you may have a lot of emotion brewing inside of you. You may have a lot of stuff in there, a lot of hurt. But what we have been told by psychology today is that we need to get it out. I want you to realize that there's a better solution. First of all, this is the mentality. Get it out. Don't bottle it up. Come on and share your frustrations. Express your junk, rant, rail, accuse, vomit, hurl, and enter spew out that which is curdling within you. It sounds reasonable. I realize that. If something's inside of you, get it out. I want you to know that when darkness is present within, there's a great secret to dealing with the darkness other than getting the darkness out and getting your vomit out. God wants to do something that will transform you, but it's completely opposite how we've been trained in our modern day. The truth, get Christ in. You know when Jesus Christ uh, comes in, what happens to darkness when you turn on a light? Darkness has no place. It has no residence in any environment where light shines. And I want you to realize your frustrations, your angers, your unforgiveness, your bitterness, you don't need to spew it. Allow Jesus to come in and rescue you from it. He has borne it. He can deal with it. You allow Jesus in. I've seen it happen so many times over. People come, sit down, and I don't ask him to spew anything. I don't ask him to vent. I say, I don't want to hear it. All I want to do is get truth in. Truth changes. Light removes darkness. I know this is backwards from the way we were taught, but I want you to know there is a better solution than having self have a little me time and spew. Allow Jesus Christ to come in and deal with it. Here's the other great motto of our day. Find yourself. How many movies are about this theme? Oh, they, it's a movie about them finding them, themselves. We all know it. That's just what Hollywood is about. It's about us finding ourselves. The great self-medicating adventure. The truth. 
He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Is it about finding your life? It's about losing your life. Well, that's a twist. It's just the biblical twist. God came up with it, not me. We're about finding ourselves. You know what Christianity is about? Losing ourselves. It's about being lost to ourselves. We're not about us anymore. We forget about ourselves. We deny ourselves. I know that sounds risky. Who's going to take care of me? You seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things that you're concerned about that you would typically seek after, he will take care of. It says he will add them unto you. That's the Christian pattern. You lose yourself in Christ. You don't find yourself. You lose yourself. Self-coddling versus truth purveying. When someone sits down in front of me, my job as a minister of the gospel and of the word of God is not to coddle them. It's not to comfort them. And people could accuse me of not being very nice in certain situations. However, if you knew what motivated me, you'd realize it's love. I want to see that person set free because I love them. And if I just wrap my arm around them and hold them through the storm as opposed to giving them truth that will rescue them, what have I done for them? They need truth. So we talk about self-coddling versus truth purveying. Some of us need to eradicate some of our patterns in how we deal with people and how we deal with ourselves. When we're going through a rough patch, what do we do? We want someone to coddle us. We want someone to have pity on us. We want someone to just hold us as opposed to allowing truth to bark in our souls to say, come on, lift your chin. Look at the risen one. Look at the Christ. See him. See him. Look outward right now. Don't turn inward. Look outward. He has done the work. Let him rescue you. There's a big difference between self-coddling and truth purveying. Purveying, by the way, means to give or to supply. The key question for the self-coddler is how do you feel? Sit someone in front of you, and they're hurting. And what's the question? How, how do you feel? Tell me. What are we setting them up for? To spew. We're setting them up to get all that junk out, and we think that's going to help them. That's not how you help someone, to ask them how they feel. Go into your wound and tell me how it feels. I'm not going to tell someone to go into their wound. I want Jesus to go into their wound. I don't know that I want them to go into their wound. It's not about you and your wounds. It's about Jesus. You start focusing on Jesus, guess what? Your wound gets healed. The key question for the truth purveyor, what is the truth? It doesn't sound as nice, and that's the challenge with it. You know what? Truth in this situation is, that's a sin. What? That person's expecting a hug from you, and you say, yeah, that's actually a sin. But God has a remedy for that. But you need to repent. What? That doesn't sound nice. You see, there's a big difference between self-coddling and truth purveying. When you supply truth to a soul, it actually sets them free, as opposed to just a hug, which makes you feel needed, and it makes them feel loved, but loved in a human sense, not in the spiritual sense. You know what we all need? Truth purveying. You know what God gives in the Bible? Just read the Bible. God purveys truth. He's not just giving you a big hug. He's saying, ah, excuse me off the throne. Repent. What did John the Baptist come saying? (laughs) Repent. That's actually the predecessor message to the coming king. You want more of Jesus? Repent. 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The rulership of Jesus over your body is at hand. I need you to turn from that wickedness. I need you to turn from that behavior. This is against your God. Self is on the throne and that cannot remain. Four classic self-coddling me questions. Boy, this one will hurt a little. How am I feeling? I don't ask myself that question. Doesn't that sound like a strange question not to ask yourself? How am I feeling? That's just what we grew up with. That's just the classic mom question to us. How are you feeling? I'm not going to ask myself that question. What's truth is what I ask. What does the Bible say right now? I've been falsely accused. I've been slandered. What does the Bible say? What? Leap for joy? You see, if I say, how am I feeling, what am I going to come to a conclusion of? I'm feeling pretty bad right now. I'm feeling pretty rotten. You know what? My conclusion will be completely different than what it says in the Bible. Be exceeding glad when you are falsely accused. Hmm. That's a little different than where I was going. When you ask yourself how you're feeling, you will inevitably come to a self-conclusion and not a biblical one. And I want you to realize a self-conclusion is opposite of the kingdom that you serve in. Let's do this right. This isn't about your feelings. I'm not saying that God ignores feeling. I'm saying feeling must follow truth. Feeling, as we say in Ellerslie, must follow fact. You follow fact and allow your feelings to come into alignment. You know that I feel a lot? But they're feelings that flow out of my love for fact. I rejoice always. Okay, let me, let me re rephrase that. I rejoice a lot. And then I get stuck in my puzzles sometimes. But as an overarching tenor to my life, there is great rejoicing. You know, it hasn't always been that way. I've been a Christian for a long time. And most of what I'm talking about here, I violated at the core of my being. The whole while I wouldn't have agreed with what I was doing, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see that I still was sort of on the edge of the throne. It's like just sort of hanging out there. Jesus, why don't you have one half and I'll have the other half? It's sort of how my life functioned. And as a result, there was a, a difficulty in my life. And I had a very, a, a great challenge in rejoicing, in praying, in any of the things that most of us look and go, how do you do those things? Let Jesus have his rightful position. You'll find out. What do, I, what do I feel God is saying? Well, what's wrong with that statement? Because it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what he is saying. You see, what most of us do is like, well, I, I remember this, this one girl that uh, was in our ministry quite a few years ago. There was this man who was going through a divorce, and she was wondering if she should date him. He was about 20 years older than her, and he's in the midst of a divorce, okay? For most of us, our wisdom would be, you know what, why don't you stay away from that one, honey? But she came to God, and she, got, she said, well, how do I feel God feels towards this? And she felt that God felt fine. Well, you know what? The Bible would probably clarify something very different if you didn't go to your feelings, but you went to the fact. You see, God clarifies things very clearly. He doesn't speak on that exact situation, but he speaks on life. He speaks on living and how we live above reproach in every situation. How am I unique? Why are we asking that? Why, why do we want to know why, how we're unique? Isn't that a fascinating question? You see, we want to have our uniquenesses noticed. And I'm not saying you're not unique. You are. 
However, when we focus on this, it turns us inward to focus and make us the study. Life is about me. It's how I feel. It's how I think. It's how I do things. What makes me special? Now, if you want to market your life, marketing is based on your uniqueness to your product. It's your unique approach. It's your unique position in the marketplace for your product. Every single one of us that's in business knows this. This is human marketing. What would human marketing be about? You. What are you marketing? Jesus? You. That's the problem with it. Okay, now I'm not going to make some indictment statement on business marketing. That's not what this message is about. It's about self-marketing. That's what the Bible is clear on. We are not about us. If you want to market something, market the gospel. Market Jesus Christ. That's what this life is about. Meianity. Okay, that's a, a religion that I'm, um, I'm not necessarily trying to start. I'm saying it's already there. It just needs a name to it. It's Christianity with Christ removed and me put in its place. Meianity. It's a celebration and worship of your own uniqueness. Oh, there's a little parenthetical statement here. Sprinkled with nice-sounding words about Jesus. Well, that's harmless. Well, it's because most of us, that's what we live. It's a celebration and worship of our own uniqueness. God loves me so much. Oh, how he loves me! With his sloppy, wet kiss. That is one of the most despicable lines. I know that the David Crowder band changed it to, what was it? The unrelenting kiss or something. Uh, a celebration and worship of our own uniqueness, but it's sprinkled with nice-sounding words about Jesus. See, if you can bring up Jesus around what you're doing, well, then that covers a multitude of sins of self. Make your life about you and then just talk about Jesus and say, oh, I was talking to Jesus about this, and he says it's perfectly all right for me to do it. Oh, really? So you had a conversation with Jesus about that. Oh, yes. Oh, it's wonderful. Hmm. You know what the Bible indicts? This behavior, it is one of the grossest forms of deceit you could ever live in, is to live under the banner of self and to call it Jesus Christ. What's me-anity about? It's about your unique style, your unique manner, your unique method, your unique taste, your unique views, your unique thoughts, and your unique theology. It's the emergent church. Christianity. And now we've got the right thing in place. Christ. A celebration and worship, get this, this is going to be a surprising one, of God's uniqueness. You know what holiness is? Otherness. It's his uniqueness. That's what Christianity is about. Not yours, his. And then get this, Christianity is beholding his holiness and then adopting it as ours. And it literally overwrites all that is in us that would be other than him. So this is lacquered with a life that sings holy, holy, holy. Christianity is an adoption of his holy style. You know that God has a style? It's usually not very hip. An adoption of his holy manner, an adoption of his holy method, an adoption of his holy tastes. You know what it says the fear of God is? Hating what God hates and loving what God loves. It's coming into concurrence with his taste. There's certain things he's attracted to. There's certain things that he hates. Make sure you're not backwards in that. 
an adoption of his holy views, an adoption of his holy thoughts, an adoption of his holy theology. Self-esteem, the great self-delusion. Whew. I'm going to take on self-esteem now. Just ponder with me for a second. Self-esteem, the esteem of self. Hmm. And this has been going under the banner in Christianity all our lives. And we just hug it and accept, oh, self-esteem, it's very good, very good. Hmm. Well, I call it the great self-delusion. Self-esteem, the Christian rendition. So I'm going to give you the Christian rendition that most of us have grown up around, okay? The cross is about me. I mean, why did Jesus come? He came for me. I'm not saying that that isn't a truth. However, that's not what the cross is. The cross is about even more than you. It's, well, I'm not going to get to that. I don't know. The cross is about me. The gospel is about me. Jesus is about me. Worship is about me. The Bible is about me. My Bible study is about me. My prayers are about me. My money is for me. My time belongs to me. My leisure time should be spent on me. The credit for any achievement or good behavior should go to me. After all, God desires me to esteem, respect, admire, acclaim, favor, appreciate, recognize, honor, revere, prize, and treasure myself. That's just what we grew up around. The truth. Christ esteem. It's true Christianity. Christ esteem. Not self esteem. Self is the rebel. Christ esteem. The cross is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. Jesus is about the glory of the Father. Worship is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible, my Bible study is about Jesus. My prayers are about Jesus. My money is for Jesus. My time belongs to Jesus. My leisure time should be spent on Jesus. The credit for any achievement of, or, or good behavior should go to Jesus. After all, God desires me to esteem, respect, admire, acclaim, favor, appreciate, recognize, honor, revere, prize, and treasure Jesus above all things. Now what's funny is I just read two different lists and you probably... Felt a little uncomfortable with my stance on the first one, yet you can't argue that one. Isn't that funny? But that's the centerpiece of the gospel. It does not mean that the gospel doesn't include you. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't address your needs. The Bible is written for your edification. So it's not that it's somehow you just happen to stumble upon it. It's like, well, this is just all about Jesus. It has nothing to do with me. It does have to do with you but not with you in the center. It's not like there's a stage and a spotlight and there you are. There's actually a stage and a spotlight and there's Jesus and there over off to the side is you in the dark, if you will. You're not supposed to be seen. You must decrease so that he would gain the spotlight. That is the gospel. Expressing our own individuality, making life on earth the great stage for our own glory. We have individuality. You know, God invented us as unique. He gave us all a unique fingerprint. He gave us all a unique look, even though I've been told I look like different people. Buddy Holly, I look like, supposedly. Uh, one of the new kids on the block, Jordan Knight. I had a lady when I was working, uh, this is back in college, this, I had my hair back, uh, and this lady came up to me, she goes, are, are, are you Jordan Knight? Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. <laughs> Expressing our own individuality. We're all unique. We're all different. And that's a wonderful attribute of the kingdom of heaven. That's part of the revelation of God's kingdom is that we're unique and different. So it's not the opposite that is true. However, it's not your uniqueness that is the centerpiece and the center point of Christianity. It is his uniqueness. 
It's not unique, unique, unique are you. It's holy, holy, holy is he. Our songs are not about our uniqueness. It's about his. The truth expressing his individuality and not our own. Though you may have individuality, your life is not about expressing it. It's about expressing his individuality. He is the one you need, not me. He is. This is 1 Corinthians 1.10, and I know I have 1, 2, and 3 in it. It's just to help you organize and, and see this. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, one, that you speak that you all speak the same thing. Talk about removing individuality. That you all speak the same thing. Now, for most of us, we know that this doesn't mean that we all get up and we say the exact same line. And it's like, okay, you, and we hand the microphone, and they say the same thing. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the next person, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's that our message is the same in substance, in points, in effect. We're all about the same thing. Paul says, this is my gospel. And you can say, ah, individuality. Yeah. Paul says, I've adopted it. It's changed me, and therefore the way I deliver it is going to be unique to Paul. However, it's the same message that Peter gave. It's the same message that Apollos gave. It's the same message that all the other disciples gave or the apostles gave. It's the same message that is crescendoed throughout Christian history. It's the same message. And that there be no divisions among you. There's not like this sect over here and this sect over here and this is the cool crowd. And this is, these are the, I remember when I was in, was it junior high? I, I sat down at this new school, very awkward. This kid turned around in typing class. And he said, are you a jock? Are you a nerd? What was the other one? Are you a stoner? That was the word for it back. A stoner? Or are you a, oh, what was the other one? Jock, nerd. Maybe that's it. Are you a jock, a nerd, or a stoner? There's one other one. And I'm like, I hope I'm not any of them. I'm not exactly sure what I am. That there be no divisions among you. In other words, this isn't about you expressing your individuality and creating a little subculture off to the side. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, that is a threat to your uniqueness, isn't it? No, you can be unique, but Jesus is the focal point. You are seeing his uniqueness and you are being tailor-made and conformed to his image. Jesus and the church is not conformed to your image or mine. We are conformed to his. Jeremiah 9, but let him that glories glory in this. Is it his uniqueness? Is it his own way and his own method, his own style? Let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. That's not a very nice statement, by the way. Forget you. I don't say that as a normal practice, okay? Because I know in our culture it's, it's sort of a negative connotation to it. But it's not a bad way of finishing this message. Forget you. This isn't about you thinking of you exploring you, discovering you, esteeming you. This is about you seeking Christ, knowing Christ, being found in Christ. This is about Jesus, 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 Jesus. 
Forget your misery, forget your junk, forget your grievances, forget your aches and pains, forget your burdens, forget your fears and anxieties, forget your dreams and desires, forget your reputation. Forget your family and friends, forget your wealth and ambition, forget your positions of power and prestige, forget your talents and skill. Forget the applause and the earthly accolades. Forget you, all of you, and every inch of you. For your life is now all about Jesus, and every inch of you now serves a greater purpose. For as Jesus said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, those are pretty strong statements. Hate. Now, the way... These statements are used, doesn't always translate very well to our understanding. Does that mean I come up and clobber my family and say, oh, I hate you because I love Jesus? We make our life about Jesus. That is our primary objective for life and living. And in the process, in contrast to our great fixation with Jesus, it may even look like a diminishment to the love relationship with those around us. It isn't, because if we love Jesus well, you know what? He'll love through us well. However, our priority isn't relationship and family. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Our, our priority as Christians is not relationship and family. It's Jesus. You know what? You may be thrown into prison because of your love relationship for Jesus. Well, how's that taking care of your family? As a man, I want to take care of my family. What good does it do if I just get thrown into prison? If it's for Jesus, that's all that matters. I'm here for Jesus Christ, and so are you. Let the church of Jesus Christ in this modern day be about Jesus once again. The thoroughfare of grace. When you let go of your life and you get off that throne, you become a thoroughfare. It's like a highway. It's a conduit. It's a flow-through channel. You know that God has things that he wants to reveal in this world? Love? You know that love, the way this world has defined love is so ridiculous. But the love of God can only be expressed through the thoroughfare of the saints who have yielded their body over to Jesus Christ and have lost their own life and have forgotten self. And they become a thoroughfare of his love. And the only revelation on earth that this world could ever see of such love is when we forget ourselves and allow him to use this body to love this world around us. You know that God wants to reveal joy in this earth? Joy, exceeding great joy. But he needs a thoroughfare to do it. He needs a channel through which to do it. His grace can only move through a channel of someone who's humbled themselves. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So his grace is only made manifest in and through the lives of those that have humbled themselves before the living God and said, this is not about me. This is about you. God wants us to be a thoroughfare of grace. 
That's what my meditation was on all week. I wasn't expecting to give this message. I had a message called joy. You're like, oh, that sounds great. Same message, different package. You know how joy flows out of your life? You forget yourself. It's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. The joy of the Lord. It's not your joy. It's his joy dwelling in you. And you do things like dance. I'm a terrible dancer. These guys are like, he doesn't know how to dance. That's why we let you guys do the dancing. But you know what? When you become a thoroughfare of grace, your life is abundantly filled with all the fruit of God's spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We actually want that. I know every single one of us is like, oh, I want that. Well, what does it come at the cost of? You. You have to pick up your cross and follow him. You have to deny yourself that position of control over this body. Your body is not your own. It was bought with a price. You want all the benefits of Jesus. They only come through the cross. You have to die. You have to get out of the way to become the thoroughfare of God's great grace. And this world will begin to see the joy of the Lord once again, in and through us. Don't we sound like the saddest lot if we follow this message? It's like, oh, but I will be forgotten. I will just be a wayside flower. No one will notice me. They'll notice Jesus. And isn't that the point? It's not about you. It's about him. When we allow our lives to be reshaped after that pattern, it all works. And suddenly the life that you've been clamoring for, but you can't seem to find because it was self-built. You've been birthing Ishmael's instead of Isaac's. You know what Isaac actually means in the Hebrew? Laughter. Yeah, there's a lot of laughter when you do it God's way. And it's a good laughter. It's a true jubilance of soul. There's reasons why it says leap for joy. Not many of us do that. I've been practicing it lately, by the way. I was in my office the other day with Sandy, and we were going through a very difficult thing. And I, we were saying, what's the truth? I'm supposed to be leaping for joy right now. Yeah! And I leapt for joy. So it's become a practice in my soul. I'm leaping for joy. It's still a little awkward because my leaping looks sort of funny. But it's a good practice. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.